Welcome in everybody to this week's episode of Discard for Magic. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron. And I'm the other host, James or Jexic. And today we're excited to bring on Shibata, who Hello. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so guys, first up, we'd like to know, where'd you come up with that name? Where, where'd it come from? Well, my real name is Ryan Shibetta. Uh, and so I started using Shibata because it would help people remember. Because everybody, everybody messed it up calling it Skibetta. One kid called me Skibbity in middle school constantly. Uh, and so Shibata was close enough that people would remember it. And then it just became a good screen name because Shibata bread is memorable. Middle school can be rough. I leave it as an exercise to the reader of some of the things I was called. Shibata, how did you find out about Summoner Wars? My best friend in elementary school had bought it in like 2009 or 2010, right when it came out. Uh, he had got the Phoenix Elves and the Cave Goblins, and we just played back and forth over and over. And just that was the first board game that we really ever experienced strategically and was a huge bonding between us two as friends. And I liked the game so much. Eventually, he was crushing me at the start, but I studied it and tried to get better and better and eventually started started beating him pretty regularly. And as a lot of people have said on these, eventually they stopped your in real life opponents stopped wanting to play with you because you just practice too much. So then I went online to find opponents and I came across the forums and started playing games on Vassal and meeting people there. And that continued for a good few years until the game uh, petered out around the second summoners, the second half of it. Basically, what you're saying is get them young. Yes. <laughs> my my girlfriend's little brother i'm like teaching him summoner wars now and making and he's introducing it to all his friends at his middle school excellent nice did you uh instantly start playing second edition when it came out or did it take you a little while to find it uh, it took me a little while uh but eventually it just popped up i'm like there's a second edition and then knowing how much i liked it like the first edition when i was a kid got back into it and it was even better i think it was um that you can't you can't kill your own units for magic article by Space Biff that let me know that it came out. Yeah, he's a great writer. Space Biff does some great work. For sure. So for those who don't know, Shibata has been a staple of the community, coming up with different ways to like bring the community together. And one of the first ones was you created some of the first community tournaments. That's right. So tell us about like what was your thought process? How how did that come about? Well, Watered or Water D, however you say it, uh, had created a tournament, uh, but then didn't really. I think got busy with his YouTube channel and his actual life, and I really wanted to to keep that going. So I I followed his footsteps and created a single elimination tournament that was just like a bracket system instead of the sort of Swiss round robin style that the league is. As that went on. Uh, eventually I was like, there's no team stuff. And one of the things I really like about sports when I play them is being able to play with teams, play with my friends. So I put in a teams element, putting a deck building element just to give people some variety. And those ended up becoming the most popular parts of it. The Shibata being Shibata boom name came just because I asked people for ideas for the name because I couldn't think of anything. And that was the most popular one. Yeah, I know that the team aspects of your tournament are one of the things that drew me to them, especially at first, because... I felt like I didn't 
I played a couple, I think, of the solo, but I I didn't feel like I needed as much of like the solo with the league and the occasional plaid hat tournament. But having that team aspect was something that I didn't see anywhere else, and it was really a lot of fun to like build a team and then talk about like how the game's going. What would you guys do in this move? What do you think we should do long term in this game? Like, should we? And working together with that team aspect really not only helps you learn a lot of different things, but also just like makes the games a lot more fun. For sure. I think even on top of that too, it was nice to have a tournament that was still competitive, but had a lower time investment on your part because you only had to actually play one game for your team. Exactly. In a week, you know, instead of having to do three. Because like if you're doing all four divisions or whatever, you'd end up with eight games at a time that week that you had to play. But if you just do the team games, that's just two. So people got to choose how much involvement they wanted or how much time commitment they wanted. I remember doing eight events, trying to do all the brackets, and I ended up just not playing ranked mode. I only played the tournaments at that point because I didn't have time for anything else. And I think some of the Cinderella stories from some of the team uh, like matchups have been really cool, too. Like One of the first ones... There was some of the couple of players who weren't as well known who went up and like knocked off like all the big names to go and win on the title. Frosty Noel, I think, was their team name. That's exactly right, Frosty Noel. And they had an incredible run. And you've done what eight of these uh, sets of CBCB tournaments now? That's right. I think seven of them have been team. Do you think these tournaments are something that you're gonna continue to like run periodically? Because I know when we first started them, um, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of competitive play. Plaid Hat was just like starting their tournaments. There was the league. But besides the league, there were not a lot of tournaments. But now there's been a ton of different other community tournaments that blossomed from your Shibata being Shibata Boom tournaments. And there's the league. And then there's a lot of Plaid Hat tournaments now, like every couple months. So... Yeah, I think I am going to continue with the Shibata being Shibata Boom series. I might lean more into the team aspect because that's the most popular bit. And because the singles and the deck building are covered really well by other tournaments now. It's not the only tournament that people have that they can play. I know Turtle Mania just happened. There's all the custom invitationals that like Ardeboy set up. There's the Garbage Gladiators ones. And of course, the official Plyhack Games tournaments now which are probably the highest level of competition. And the Tournament of Champions. Can't forget that one. Yes. That's the one you ran. I'm sorry. <laughs> Definitely can't forget that one. Well, also speaking of things Aaron won, there was your uh, Oops All Goblins tournament too that you did. Right. And I want to do some more of those one-offs too because I think those are just fun events. Yeah, the Oops All Goblins was just like a fun, quirky tournament. It was like deck building, but only for sneaks. And everybody came with a different... Cape Goblin sneaks deck. Mine ended up being the the best. It was very tight in that final game. I played, uh, I think, Voltaire. Or not? Or was it? Or was it Vifon Master? Well, it might have been Vifon Master. Because I remember he was in the Art of Breeze uh, Invitational, doing very well with the Cave Goblins, and he ended up winning that too. He had a really good deck. I actually got um, a little bit lucky with my rolls on the back end. He had like a nine health sneaks, I think that he had pushed up, and I rolled, like, 12 dice against him, and I hit... I actually... I had 12 dice to roll, and I didn't even need to roll 12 because I hit my first nine melee. Wow. Killed him right there. He had me on the back foot, and I was uh, getting cornered, but... 
Sometimes bringing sneaks up is a mistake. It was Vifon Master. There were, at the end of that game, counting the summoners, there were 12 units on the field, and 10 of them were in your half of the board. <laughs> and most weren't mine. Correct. <laughs> Have you ever tried to run any like in-person tournaments, Shibata? Unfortunately, there just aren't enough players to make that happen. But if there were, I would love to. I'm like, I think I can call myself the best player in D.C. Because as far as I'm aware, I'm the only player in D.C. <laughs> I'm not the best player in my area. That's probably Ben at this point, unless we find someone else who lives here. I don't think there's really any other players in my area. Not a lot, anyway. I've introduced the game to a couple new players, but I haven't met anybody who's been playing for more than a couple months yet. Summoner Wars has an interesting dynamic where it's a very small community, but also international and spans the entire globe. That's one of the things we've been trying to highlight, you know, get people from all over on the the cast here and stuff. You get sort of a local element of the small-knit and close-knit community, and you also get the international element of everybody from diverse walks of life. It's a combo that you don't normally get, because most local communities are local. Everybody's in the same place. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of small communities from a lot of different areas. Like, I know the Polish community has, like, a decent decent grouping um there's quite a few really good polish players we had on massimo who's from germany we had on water d or watered from argentina and there's just a like all over the the globe players from everywhere our like listening audience actually interestingly enough is from like 22 different countries amazing (laughs) Wow, I didn't know that one. That's what I would lead off if you're getting publishing deals instead of the absolute number of listeners you get. What are your thoughts about like the community's growth so far? Because it's slowly been growing, and we've had fairly steady growth over the last year or two, but it still does feel like that small-knit community that everybody knows everybody, and there's not a lot of new faces. Occasionally we'll see a couple, but... I think that the growth has been good. I think it's been sustainable, which is really important. And it's done that without any real advertising or artificial push from Flathat Games or from anybody else. People might not be coming that often, but when they come, they usually stay. And the community leaders, Fuzzy Marmot in particular, uh, as well as yourself, have done a really good job of fostering that and making it inclusive for everybody. I mean, when, when we get one person who's just even a little, like, abrasive, that's that's news. Whereas other communities have, you know, horrible things said on the regular. I play Smash Bros, and I had to, I had to get out of there. <laughs> in some way, I think it kind of goes back to, like, the roots in the Heroescape community, which was very open and, and kind, for the most part, and had good sportsmanship. Or, like, the old forums, you know, for the first edition. You know, I think there's always been this kind of thing with Summoner Wars... I guess it depends. You know, like if someone says bad things about the game, I guess people get their t- their their pitchforks out and stuff. <laughs> I remember Watered talking about that in his episode. But I think that's gotten better too, as we kind of realized that, you know, just because someone disagrees with us doesn't mean they're wrong. We're not experts on this game. No one is an expert on this game. I also think the fact that, albeit at a slow p- pace, uh, Plathead has shown that they're willing to make adjustments to cards when they feel it's necessary. Kind of shows that it makes what they do less like sanctified. We, we can't just say like, "Oh, this game's perfect. Don't change it." Or like, "Okay, well, if they're willing to change it, maybe we should be open to changes." And that it's not perfect. Exactly. Speaking of sanctified, I think my only worry 
is that we tend to put some of the best players up on these pedestals, like Profit and Vexer and names like that. Donkey back in the day when he played more. Yeah. And I don't think they really enjoy that. And it's because the difference between them and us in skill might be great, but the difference between them and us in terms of like people and personality is non-existent. And so, and I think they've done a good job of tampering that down and that's been getting better over time too. Yeah. I think there's like a, a, a fine line between like recognizing the greatness of these, some of these players that are in the community, like Profit's been on an incredible run the last several months and then not like putting them up on like a pedestal that they're just better than everybody else. You want to show how amazing they've been doing, but also they're they're just a person too. And also it puts a lot of pressure on these top players of like, well, I've been told that I'm like the best player right now, so I got to win every game I play. Exactly. I remember there like <laughs> there's definitely been times where with other players I've sent a message to someone when I've beaten one of these top players or they've sent a message to me like oh I just beat so and so and there's <laughs> it's like I guess you know yeah they can have an off day too so we shouldn't necessarily be like making a big deal out of that either I think especially I think when a new when new factions come out we're bound to get our our wins against those players when everyone's feeling out the new factions I think when a a new set drops or, or a new pair of factions a tricky bit also is with that kind of competition with the luck base, because I can win a poker hand against Phil Ivy, or I can win a poker game against Phil Ivy. But if all I got dealt was pocket aces, that doesn't mean I'm a better player than Phil Ivy. That's very true. Game has definitely some aspects of luck to it with the dice and the card draws. I mean, the consistency from some of those players is is incredible. For sure. And that's with a game with so much luck and so much variance to be that consistent and win that often against the high level of competition they're going against is something we want to recognize and something we do. The community's been slowly increasing, but do you think there are any ways that we could further increase the community or get the word out about how good Summoner Wars is? I think the strongest tool is word of mouth. Just tell your friends about it. I was able to get a couple of my friends into this game, especially if you capitalize off of all the shenanigans that are going on with Magic the Gathering, uh, <laughs> with with a lot of the like pay to win elements in that game, not to just you know trash on a huge fan base, but to trash on the Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. I'm happy to do that. A lot of my friends were having trouble with that, and I was able to pitch Summoner Wars as, "Hey, this is one of the most ethical game companies. You can buy a hundred percent of the cards for one deck." For one deck, for the price of one deck, yeah. I mean, yeah, because like a like a pioneer deck now, which is one of the cheaper formats compared to modern, is still like five hundred bucks, I think. Mm-hmm. If you want to be competitive. And same for standard, is probably a couple hundred bucks. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you could get literally all of Summoner Wars for a couple hundred bucks, even though you're jumping in late. Aside from like maybe those deck boxes, but those aren't essential for play. And you can dip your toes in with the master set or starter set for $50 or $25. Very low initial commitment to be able to try out the game and see if you like it. Or even just go online. That's the thing that I think will be a lot easier once we get the app. You tell people, oh, you go to this website. It's just People think that, you know, it's like 2000 or something. You know, They don't want to do that. But I think once you can like, put it on their phone and just like, hey, there it is. It'll, it'll be easier to get people into it that way. My point was that the price point on the online is even better than giving them the physical game, you know, because it's just like $3 for that first month and you have access to everything. Or free. You get a free faction. That's the best price point. You know, like Marvel Snap, like, touts itself on, like, you have to slowly get the cards. There, you, there's, like, no way to shortchange it or even play a little bit or a lot of it to play, have access to everything. You just have to wait and play a lot. 
and uh, that that model works for them. But it's a little frustrating for me as someone who wants to just be able to play around with the pieces. I agree. Summoner Wars is a path around all of the frustrating microtransactions and you know pay to win mechanics or just slow grind loot boxes, all that kind of stuff. Because what you see is what you get with this. I just feel better after playing a game of Summoner Wars than I do after playing a game of anything else on my phone. There were the Summoner Showdowns a while back. That was largely level 3 CPUs thing, but you were helping him with that, right? That's right. Do you, you want to talk a little bit about what that was and how it uh, impacted the community? Yeah, those are just a fun way to highlight matchups and get some YouTube presence. Uh, level 3 CPU was definitely the driving force behind it. I was more of like in a cis supporting role, just helping do the commentary. But the, the Twitch setup that he had and the flow that he had with his natural charisma and pre- presentation skills, I think helped bring a lot of excitement to the community and also helped pave the way for what Ben 10 and Fuzzy Marmot are doing right now with their summoner scuffles, continuing on that tradition and taking it even higher. And you have your own YouTube channel. Do you think you'll end up doing more in the future with it when, when it comes to Summoner Wars content? I definitely want to, yes. This has been, in a similar way that Chase, our level 3 CPU kind of stepped back because his life got really hectic, this has been a really hectic time for me personally. I moved across the country. I bounced from job to job before getting my permanent position right now. Moving across the country generally is the whole thing. Uh, that's a huge shakeup. As things start to settle down, I'll have more time on my hands to make more of those videos and write more of those articles. And I do want to keep making YouTube content because I like making things and I think people like listening to it. But you don't have anything concrete planned yet, but we'll we'll stay tuned. I have no concrete YouTube videos yet. I have a few drafts for articles for Summoner Wars Zone. Hopefully at least one of them is out by the time this is published. But there's one for how to place gates correctly or place gates well. There's one for how to pilot deck building Savannah Elves. I started to write one for how to pilot base deck Savannah Elves before realizing that Water D had done my job better than me with the faction guides that I hadn't seen. And a little flowchart for recommendations for which, which factions to buy after you buy the master set and starter set and see which ones you like there. It's sort of like figure out what you might like and then what would be similar. That's a common question people ask, so I think it's a good idea. Like a buyer's guide type of thing but with a flowchart. Some of the connections are easy. Cave goblins to wayfarers. If you like swarming people and being super aggressive, then try swarming people and being super aggressive in a slightly different way. Or like Fallen Kingdom to Crimson Order. You know, if you like resurrecting your units and damaging your own guys and healing your summoner, well, here's someone who does the same thing, but in a way that makes it feel completely different and still really fun and interesting. But then trying to find a way to connect complicated factions like Shadow Elves, Fungal Dwarves, that's trickier. And I still want to recommend those factions somehow because they are some people's favorites. You can also get into like uh, auras around your summoner as a connection. So even something like Mountain Vargath and Fungal Dwarves or High Elves might be similar in a way. If you like playing Polar Dwarves or Savannah Elves where they have summoner abilities that only activate within three spaces of their summoner. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think also the infect aspect with Fallen Kingdom can create a link to fungal dwarves. That's true. If you prefer that carriers to the warrior archer game. Or if you prefer the archer game where the units bounce back and forth and teleport, then you can try the shadow elves. 
Very true. So recently we had a deck building tournament come to a close, and you piloted a, a phenomenal Savannah Elves deck. Thank you. You only lost like a couple games with it. What made you choose Savannah Elves for it? Well, I heard a lot that Savannah Elves were undervalued in deck building. So part of me wanted to challenge that. Part of me knew I was good with the base deck Savannah Elves. So it was just one of my strongest factions from my primary playstyle and my primary games. But the main factor was that I played the deck building Savannah Elves in Art of Roy's custom tournament. So I had put in more games into the Savannah Elves than all the other factions deck building combined. And so I kind of figured I'm not going to be the best Shadow Elf player or Fungal Dwarves player, even if those are the strongest factions. But if the Savannah Elves are undervalued, I'll be able to take advantage of them. Yeah, I think you did that pretty well. Are there any like key cards you think that stand out to that different from the base deck that, that kind of bring it to that other level? Maldar single-handedly makes the deck viable. Maldar is by far the crown jewel of deck building savannah elves because as good as he is in fungal dwarves as good as he is in shadow elves i think his best fit is with abushi and boosting abushi because what makes the savannah elves chant of power combos so threatening is the lack of commitment that they take you can play the economy game and build up boost on abushi and build up your hand and just hold on to it until you get the opportunity to unleash the border archer entangling, one turn kill, one turn combo, whatever permutation that you want to use. And unlike with the Tundra Orcs, where you have to build up to five magic and take the hit on your tempo, or try to get your setups with the, the fighters and play around with the axes, you can sit with Maldar in the back and not expose yourself. This leads to a sort of pick your poison for the decks you're facing where they can either try to rush you, play against the Savannah Elves' natural weakness of low defensive abilities, but open themselves up to a much easier chance of power combo, or they can hang back and play defensive, but thereby lose in the economy and weaken themselves up to the Savannah Elves' very strong economy game with border archers and rhinos and extra attacks through entangling and stuff like that. Yeah, I experienced this uh, firsthand in the deck building tournament in which my cave goblins went up against your Savannah Elves. Oh, that was a fascinating game. It, it really was, because both of us just stuck in our corners. Not not entirely by choice, maybe for you by choice, but I uh, I didn't draw the cards to really advance on you, so I didn't have the option. I drew a lot of like champs and events early, and only like one unit a turn that wasn't a champ so i didn't have i could either send the unit up and like try and do some chip damage and just watch him die and give you magic or just hold back and try and play for a long game and have a chance that way and i did try and play for a long game it didn't work out the best turns out savannah elves have a better long game than the cave goblins especially in deck building but uh, we played a game after that in the deck building queue in which I was even like very aggressive and got a hand that I could push up against you and try and punish you on that early aggression. And you still ended up pulling it off with a very well-played entangling chant of power combo, I believe, at the end. 
That's usually what does it. The move that surprised me the first time I saw it, I think we might have been in the open queue, was where you would um, take a, an eager adventurer and put like five boots on them and then chant a power it from that range. Because I thought, oh, there's no way the chant of power is getting to my summoner. But you chant a power from far away and then embark forward and then use the, the entangling swing. And it was just like, he only needed eight dice, but he had 16 on my Savara, I think it was. I think the, the couple other cards that really change that deck for deck building are Eager Adventure, which you were just talking about with that combo. I think they're phenomenal with Chant of Power and Entangling with Border Archers. And the other one that really was giving me a hard time was Vine Mancers. Vine Mancers in that deck, oh my goodness, their ability to pull Border Archers back from range or areas that they need them. It was just a nuisance to play with because you always felt just out of reach. The Savannah Elves need two cards in deck building. They need cards to combo that can kill you in one turn. And they need cards to help them tread water until they can set up that combo. The best cards can do both, and Vinemancers can do both. They, they pull back the Border Archers, play that ranged game, and they can also get units out of the way so you can attack through lines, like getting a blocker, pulling that unit out of the way with a Vinemancer. And then shooting with your chant of power border archer. And I think the neat thing about vine mancers too is they don't require an attack. So if you just position them in some central location, you can just have them ready to go. I have them as the best of the forcing common units because of that. That and they have three range instead of just two, which is huge. They also can uh, gain a boost just on movement, which is makes them a viable target if you need it for like chant of entanglement. And Chant of Power with a Border Archer to give them a very strong attack. They don't have a super strong base attack to melee dice, but you give them an extra five dice on that, and they attack twice with an Entanglement, and then you're in for a world of hurt. Exactly. And if you're early game with Entangling, you don't have a combo to set up. You can play Chant of Entangling on on it to get a Border Archer to move and build a boost. Or if you have a combo, you can play Chant of Entangling. So when the Border Archer moves, it gets a boost. And that's two more damage if you have a Chant of Power on it. So we talk a lot about Chant of Power and Chant of Entangling. What are the other events that you have in your deck? Anything different than base? That's the trickier part. Chant of Power is an auto-include because it's the epic event, but it would be an auto-include anyway. You have to play two Chant of Entanglings. It's built for Abushi and built for Border Archer. The other cards are a lot more up for bait. In the tournament, I played a Vinegate, Stim Shrooms, a Martial Forces, and a, I think a second Vinegate. I think the Vinegates were a mistake. Even though they're very strong cards, I don't think they're ideal for this deck because it's too slow and too stationary. They're all about the lack of commitment, and when you plop down a Vinegate, especially in a forward position, it's a huge commitment. Or at least it's a one-card commitment. And it's a three health card that can get taken out easily, unlike the typical five health. What I'm currently playing is Stim Shrooms, either one or two, uh, which is amazing on Abushi. Because you can Stim Shrooms to move Abushi one space further, increasing your chance of power range on your last turn. And then Spirit Bond, giving you an extra boost to put onto whatever common unit you're going to play chance of power on. Martial Forces is a very strong card just in general for all of its movement shenanigans, and especially good when you don't have Vinemancers to work with. Chant of Weaving, if a common sticks around in the back row, it can deal with 
crazy amount of damage, although it sometimes feels like a win more card. One vine gate, just to make sure you're getting gate draws early, increases consistency. And battle leader for more damage early, playing Abushi aggressively early, because you can take the first nine hits on the summoner don't matter. And then being able to back off. Or just adding an extra movement on your final turn if you need to. I hadn't thought of Battle Leader. So which ones are you actually using these days out of all those? Right now, I'm using Stim Shrooms, Vine Gate, Martial Forces, Battle Leader. But I'm not okay. super confident on it. Sometimes I try Double Stim Shrooms. Sometimes I try Vine Gates. Sometimes I try Chant of Weavings. I'm still experimenting with the last four spots. My common unit lineup. Four Border Archers, Rhinos, Vinemancers, and Eager Adventurers is pretty set in stone until the Deeper Grokes come out. The only other card that's worth it is Spirit Mage, and I think that Vinemancer serves its purpose just as well. Makes sense, because as far as an entangling target, it'll give the Border Archer the ability to move and get a boost anyway. Exactly. And those cards allow you, if you have four of everything, you can discard very aggressively and build tempo. And unless you're playing the Cave Goblins, this deck is probably not going to win the long game anyway. So you want to be playing aggressively. Yeah, I think we had a game once where you were like 12 cards behind me in deck. And I am usually and I usually discard pretty heavily, but maybe not with the deck I was playing. I think, I think it was Polar Dwarfs and you were setting up Ice Ram combos. You did have my number in the tournament game, though, Jexic. Oh, yeah. With the uh, Mountain Vargeth. I think you just got out a little too far yeah, and I, I managed to make you pay for that. I put the yeah. gate behind me and that's... Uh, cardinal sin unless you're playing ava with flying you never want the gate behind your summoner yeah never put the gate behind you i always occasionally not always i'll occasionally see people who like will step in front of their starting gate with their summoner and i'm like ah that was a mistake you shouldn't have done that i feel like grognak might want to do that in very specific matchups like against like cloaks or something or someone else that'll have dagger just to protect yourself from getting daggered, but that, like, that's a very matchup. Like, I, I agree, the general rule, you probably don't want to put a gate behind yourself. I had put the gate to my side and then walked in front of it for a turn, thinking it was going to be the last turn or the second to last turn. But then you had a very strong defensive play with Stronghold or Martial Forces or something, using uh, Sunder. Or even Varn or something like that. Yeah, I did something. And then I was like, shoot, I can't get to, I can't get to the summoner now. But I'm also now trapped. And even though I'm not going to get hit this turn, which I had planned for, I will get hit on the turn after or the turn after that. So I had tried to break through, and I think it got you to like two health. But the, the odds were in your favor, and they worked out for, your, for you there. That was one of only two of your losses that tournament? That was one of only two losses. The other one was to Profit, which my deck never even got started. Yeah, his deck was really frustrating to, to face. <laughs> I made a bigger deal out of the loss of profit because if I had beaten him, it was the last game I had because it was slow because it was the high elves and it was the second round. And if I had beaten him, my loss to you wouldn't have mattered because I would have had seven, one and tied won the tiebreaker against profit, but it was not to be. And we all saw what happened in the finals. And if you haven't go back and check out their episode with profit and Astriel. That was a great game too. Yeah. That game was insane. We talked a little about the events. Are there any other cards you would have changed in that deck? Like, he brought, what champs did you bring? Would you have changed any of those? You seem fairly set on your commons. The commons I feel the best on. Uh, my champs, Maldar, you have to bring. It's just an instant pick. Other two champs are also up for debate. I went with Makenda Rue and Varn. And if I were to do it again, I would probably pick those same two. 
but there are a lot of good options here. And I think it could come down to player style just as much as power level of each character. Or trying to match your champs to your common selection. If you pick more spirit mages or if you pick some deep root grokes commons, you might want your champs to align with that. I was in a similar place because I was also playing a spirit deck uh, with the mountain Vargath. And obviously I couldn't have Muldar, but I ha- and it wouldn't make sense in Vargath. But I actually ended up with Tess, Guilford, and Varn just to like get all these utility champions. Tess was a really interesting one. Uh, they all have low stats, but they have good abilities. I already had border archers was my thought. It's like, I, I don't need McKendaroo if I've got all these border archers. And border and McKendaroo can't be entangled, you know? So, so like, she's great for the value game, but I kind of thought I often wouldn't be playing a value game. I'd, I'd want the extra utility that something some different champion would bring. Like, a Varn, you know, is more obvious. But I think, I think Airy Gates and Tess, you know, like, just having... If your deck has extra structures, it might make sense to bring Tess. I don't know about for your deck in particular, but still it's like she's the kind of unit that when she comes on the board or even if she's in your deck suddenly your opponent has to think about different lines whereas mckendaru as great as she is she's still just like a bigger border archer you know <laughs> so if it wasn't abushi with chant of power i would not have brought mckendaru but chant of power is just such an such an automatic combo with swift shot and i kind of was using mckendaru as a uh poor man's shonk just a big buff nine health champion who you can slot down and deal damage and know that will survive a turn. That deck had fewer rhinos too, so it was lower on health. Yeah, the common breakdown is often kind of tough too, but I like that you in your current version you kind of decided consistent uh, build over a splashy one. It's, I, it's always an interesting discussion, I think, about which way to go with deck building. I splash the events because a lot of them are actives. So if you have two in your hand, it's not very useful anyway. The only one that I might not splash is Stim Shrooms. But if I'm playing two Stim Shrooms, then I'm taking out McKendaroo and just fully committing to the aggro tempo. I'm not winning the value game. Do you think you might play something like Guilford in that case? I might play Guilford. Uh, I might play, when it comes out, the zero-cost Mercenary Champion. Oh, it's uh, Veldemax? <laughs> I think Veldemax will be really strong in this deck because you need... Magic. How would you protect him? You don't. Just treat him as a zero coster. Sometimes you need a zero cost unit. It opens up lines. And then the opponent does have to deal with him. Guilford, I feel like, is very underrated for the bully ability, though. I, that that can win so many games. It, I used it the other day to win a game against Mount Vargrath as a Skysburg Avians. It's just such a great end game. Like, you think you're safe, but you're not. With the extra reach, too. Yeah, he flies, and he's got range, and and he's generally not that easy to kill in one turn, so unless they have to really commit to him, and they probably will if they see him coming out, so, yeah. Or, I mean, he, the fact that he's ranged and flying, you can even just use him as, like, a value guy. I, I think I was playing against Massimo, his Fallen Kingdom, and I ended up just using Guilford as, like, a ranged unit for, like, a very long time, not at being that aggressive with him, but just using him with, like, Sunderved's aura and just getting four four die rain shots for a very long time. But speaking of Varn, I think he is the second strongest champion that you can put in this Savannah Elves deck. Oh, after Mulder? I was initially really hesitant because he doesn't use boosts, but he doesn't use boosts. So if you're low on boosts, he doesn't take any commitment there. And the movement shenanigans are another thing that works both with the economy and the assassination game. Yeah, I mean, it works great with border archers to be able to readjust them and not have to move them kind of thing. 
And you can teleport, you can do the chant of power on the attack phase and then use Varn's ability to move a unit forward in a similar way that you use for the eager adventurers and embark. Varn opens up a lot of interesting lines for sure. Varn is such a good champ. I was curious when you were saying that statement if you were going to say Varn is the second best champ in the entire game. Maybe. Maybe. To who? Baldo? I have Baldo as at number two. But Varn is very, very high up there. Who's your number one? Malder. I don't actually think... <laughs> I, like, Malder's very strong. But I don't have him as high-valued as a lot of people do. He's probably still in my top ten. Just because he's so cheap and useful but i think like baldo and varn might be a little like their abilities are in my opinion a little stronger baldar is the closest we get to etch and etch was a menace and we also gotta throw silts in there too in the mix for for strong champs silts is very good jarwin had the title in the early days yeah yeah i i was uh uh, Jarmoon hater early on, and then I got smacked around by a lot of Jarmoons, and now I have fallen into line. I was gonna say the funny thing with him is like Vlox, you can ice charge twice in a turn, which is brutal. <laughs> Use ice smiths to build up the boosts in turns before. I'm curious because Prophet said he was probably gonna run a, a cloak deck next round, so I'm curious which which variation of his cloak deck he'll run, and if he'll run like uh, structures and Jarmund and scabs and see what uh what that does in the next deck building tournament i would guess he did he'll do something like that and he ran tess as well like i think his champ lineup was like tess blarf and oh i forget might have been yarmund yarmund got weaker when people started playing around him because it takes a turn to set up but he then he got stronger when the vine gates came out and he no longer needed to turn to set up i play him in my polar dwarves deck that's all about punching just because i already have the vine gates and he can be useful that way. I'm not that afraid of Jarmund with my Cave Goblin deck just because I can hit so hard in a single turn that I can normally take him out if I'm given a shot. If I'm given a shot. If if he's sitting in the back and Vlox is just copying him, then I don't know if I'll ever even see him. But but I think for everybody's sanity, it'll be uh, real good if Prophet plays a different deck the next tournament. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I just I just looked at my top 10, and the top 5 are Maldar, Buldo, Varn, Silts, Shonk, Jarmund, Cassia, Mackenderu, Dagger, Blarf. Shonk is underrated. He's just a stat block, but he's underrated. I actually play him in my Tundra Orc deck, even though he doesn't really fit, fit the game plan, just because he's sometimes you want a guy that just holds the space for a while. He's so hard to deal with at that health. Yeah, you have to convert so much uh, like units and resources to it. Because I find when I play like your Tundra Orc deck, I can deal with Shonk fine, but I have to, like, either leave him out there for a bunch of turns and have him be fine killing all of my units at, like, two health units, or I have to convert, like, an Enrage and an Axe and finish him off, like, immediately. And it's just a lot to uh, sacrifice. Yeah, if you if you spend an Enrage and an Axe on Shonk, I'm like, all right, cool, now it's not hitting my summoner, you know? Yep, which is brutal. And if you try to ignore him, then he just gets on you and all of a sudden rolls six and you're like, oh. Yeah, I'm not as worried about that. I'm more worried like that he just sticks around for 30 turns and just kills a bunch of like slingers and chargers and rogues. and. That's a lot more likely to happen. But I'm saying that upper threat is what I think carries him from 
spot 10 to spot 5. That's very true. Occasionally you see that 8 for 8. The main weakness of a tank about taunt is that you can ignore them, and you can't really ignore them. Well, also, like, sometimes, like, Brub has already died or something, and I've got these boosts. So, like, well, I might as well roll the, use the boost to reroll to try to get, like, four or five hits, you know? Blarf, I think, even though you mentioned him on accident, is another great stat line. Because, I mean, even if you don't put any boost on him, he's a five health blocker for zero. And I think that's underutilized, especially in deck building, where you're not just necessarily playing on the cave goblins all-out aggression playstyle. And he's also funny because, like, in, say, Mountain Vargath, you can run Weaving with him and <laughs> summon stuff off of him and get him boosted that way. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't even think about that. I did it in, like, a, I did a draft against Ben, and I did that towards the end of the game. I was like, look at this. I'm going to weave. <laughs> and with Sunday, you can give him an extra attack, too, and then you just roll in, like, six dice. Yeah, six dice. Six dice for a zero coster? We'll take that. That's just that's just a loot ball. Yeah, for zero instead of six. I mean, it's hard to summon that many units off him with the weaving, but I, I but then maybe spend one magic to get him up. I might experiment with him more in Mountain Vargath, but after the tournament, I just kind of felt like everyone was playing Mountain Vargath, so I haven't played Mountain Vargath since, so I haven't worked on that deck. And maybe I should. Because uh, I've just been playing like my Tundra Orc deck or my Polar Dwarf deck for fun or like random other weird stuff. Like we were talking about trying to run Smiths in Krusk uh, so you could like detonate and get your Smiths back and stuff. I listened to the Waterdy podcast. I'm like, you know what? No one's trying the Breakers. Maybe I should give them another shot. And I play them like, I don't, I don't like these guys. They're heartbreakers. Well, the thing with Breakers is that now you can make them much, to- you can make turn them into like a pure assassination deck, which feels totally wrong, but it kind of works. Just because you can play, run stuff like Silts and Biters and Rust Riders. Because like you can have Mind Witch copy a Rust Rider who has Mortar or even Turret. Just do silly stuff. Mind Witches are the bane of my existence in deck building. They're very powerful. Um, that they're probably easily top five common. I'd say up there with the rest of Prophet's deck because because <laughs> <laughs> peace and deceivers. I uh, probably have to have a top five spot too. I would at think. least peace, like peace deceivers. My because mind which is like they take whatever strong thing your opponent's doing and do them back to them. Because like if I have like a fighter with an axe and for glory, and I don't win, now he can j- just spend a mind which to copy the the axe and the axe fighter and ho- and if then he gets a frenzy, then I'm in a lot of trouble too. You know so. Peace is my number one. I think Peace is the strongest unit in both deck building and base. I, I think it's the strongest unit in the game because, like, worst case scenario, it's a 1-4, essentially. That's if you kill it right away. A 2-4? Or a 2-4. Yeah, there you go. It's a 2-4 for one magic. I don't know. It's just broken. Theoretically, your opponent can make use of the, the, the aura. So that's the thing. That might be the, the unit I would dial back if uh, High Elves get a change at any point because I feel like that's also one of the most like negative experiences of like you're trying to attack high elves and you can't get to their pieces and then you're just like i'll roll again and i deal zero damage and i'll roll again and zero more damage and especially for factions that can't get past the three attack barrier i mean like war they saw war and were like okay well this should cost two because it gives us this good aura and you can use it to your advantage but it seems like Peace could just as easily also cost two and, and call it a day. Yeah, that might be a way to, to change it. If it cost two, it would be fine. If it was a melee unit, I think it would be fine. I think so, Still too. Still really good, but 
I think if it was a melee unit, that would be fine. Because part of the frustrating thing is that they can shoot and then basically be safe after the shot. Yeah, we're because we keep saying they have like the best range game of almost any deck, but like they they have a very good melee game too. Once you get in there, because then you have to deal with Valeria. I fairly easily outranged breakers in the the league game that we played with just peace and war, just sitting back and forcing them to try and trade with me. So for the next tournament, you think Shibata that you're going to bring Savannah Elves again, or I do. I don't know who else I would bring. I feel much better with. The Savannah Elves, just from a player skill level than any other deck. And experience, as you said, yeah. For ranked, I'll be playing a lot of different decks, having fun, trying new things. But when it comes to the tournament, and it's all on the line, you know, the very, very high stakes of a Plat Hat Games coupon and bragging rights, then I'm, I'm going Savannah Elves all the way. I'm not sure what I'll do. I've been talking about going back to Tundra Orcs, but maybe I'll play Savannah Elves too, because not that many people do, and they, you know, I think they'll they'll be pretty good coming up. In the last one, there were two Savannah Elf decks. It was me and someone who played Miti Mumwe, <laughs> and they won over half their games or half their games. So champion, yeah, no, they might have winning that much with Miti Mumwe might have been a more impressive accomplishment than profit. That's very true. I also saw a couple just like base decks in the deck building tournament last time, which I thought was kind of weird. Maybe people didn't realize it was a deck building tournament and they just accidentally submitted the base deck. But I, I played against a base deck Wayfarers that was just real weird. How'd they do? Uh, they lost every game. That makes sense. It's a little bit of a knife to a gunfight. I'm still trying to figure out how to make Wayfarers work in deck building. Because I love their play style, but I haven't come across, I haven't like come up with a good deck build yet that really like enhances what they do and actually can hang with the other deck building decks. Because theoretically, it should be decent enough against like some of the Blood Summon decks that are trying to go slow and you can just kind of get in there before they do their thing. I, I don't know, a single game I saw of Ben that Blood Summon went slow. Blood Summon was just like <laughs> all up in my face with the Blood Summon Rhinos. It's, yeah, if you get it first. It depends on when you get it, I guess. But uh, I've been experimenting playing a Blood Summon deck just to get better with at, at knowing what it can do, like what its range and reach is. I've been playing a little bit of the Shadow Elves one. Yeah, when you win, it just feels dirty. I don't think I'll do it too much more. Not to say anything bad about it, it's just not my style is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Does it feel better or worse than shooting through like a, a gate with Brub? Oh, Brub feels better every time. How about dealing 16 damage with the adventurer, eager adventurer that teleported across the battlefield? <laughs> that sounds fun. That sounds fun. I mean, that sounds like a good time. But like, I have zero magic and I'm going to kill your summoner that's across, that's in the corner, just hiding. I don't know. That doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe not zero. I usually use like one magic to like do uh, ancient uh, Onyx Tome. Because with Callforth, you can play a couple Callforths, then Onyx Tome your Callforth. And then play a blood summon and get like your six commons out. You, it's it's crazy. Oh, you can you can chain if your hand is onyx tome, onyx tome, call forth, call forth, blood summon. You can get eight commons. Which means you can go ten spaces. Just like as an FYI, my, I think what what generally helps to pre prevent from getting killed by the undead warriors is just leave something next to your summoner. Like if it's the mid game against blood summon decks, just put something next. Like just. Don't leave any spaces open next to your summoner. That's really the best thing you can do, because then you can at least stop the warrior. I guess that would be the advantage of fungal dwarfs. 
positioning would have to be really specific since the Vivancer can only pull. They can't push. I give people tips for like base deck Fallen Kingdom. I always say just one of the biggest things is make sure no warrior can ever reach you. And I feel like that's the same with the Blood Summon decks, except it's way harder to predict where that warrior is going to come from. Shibata, we uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast and just chatting about the community and the tournaments and some deck building. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Is there any way that people can find you on like maybe the Discord or YouTube or I'm always available on the Discord. My DMs are open. It's just Shibata. That's just the entire username. C I A B A T T A. Uh, my YouTube comments are all unlocked as well. Those should be the primary ways for for Sumner Wars, yeah. I guess you can search up my census email for Ryan Shibetta if you want to, but I'd probably stick to Discord and YouTube. Thank you again for having me. This was awesome. Oh, thanks for coming on. We appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. This has been another episode of Discard for Magic, and we'll see you guys in a couple weeks.